Welcome to the BC Perspective Podcast. This is episode 317, which is one more than 316. It's being recorded on September 10th, 2014. I am your host tonight, Mr. Rourke. No, that's not right. I'm Josh Walrath. I'm Alan Malentano. And I'm Maury Tettleman. If you notice, we have a few people missing. Namely, Jeremy, who uh, someone uh, uh, stuck a corkscrew in his back and twisted a few times as he was riding public transportation in Vancouver, which obviously you probably shouldn't be doing that. Uh, Ryan, he is at a secret location on the coast of California, brought in by someone who uh, is interested in his opinion of things, or at least the amount of people that he can reach. It's all about reach, and uh, this is something that I personally don't have. So anyway, uh, you can get a hold of us at podcast at pcpro.com if you have any issues, questions, problems, or uh, just want to say hi. You can also reach Ryan at rshroud at pcpro.com, but don't tell him I sent you. Uh, you can also follow us at uh, twitter.com slash ryanshroud, twitter.com slash pcper, and then twitter.com Josh D. Walrith, if you know how to spell that. Uh, you can find the recordings of these, all lovingly edited by Ken, our resident ginger, who is the only one in attendance today. And you can find those at pcpro.com slash podcast. So, if you really like the podcast, if you like to listen to us and see our very, very shiny heads, then you can go to pcpro.com slash subscribe. You can sign up for our email alerts of when a new program is coming your way. I don't personally do it, but then again, Ryan just kind of tells me right off the bat. So people who don't have that kind of luxury, you need to sign up. We'll get a hold of you, and you can watch the gloriousness that is live broadcast internet streaming video. Just ask Apple how well that went. So, we don't have much news this week, do we? No, no reviews, no news. No, no, no. IDF not really. didn't go on. No, no. Apple didn't have a thing. No. So again, I got to ask you this: Are we still recording? Yeah. We have not everything found out is, yet. Everything is not broken. Oh, for now. that's so nice. So anyway, let's uh, move along because we got a lot to talk about. Maury, 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 you revert a motherboard. <laughs> yes, I did. Motherboard by Mori. Talk uh, to us. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. The, the current review we have up is the Asus X99 Deluxe. Ryan did do, uh, Ryan did a video uh, walk through that board. Uh, we have more, you know. Of course, I did my own work on it, a uh, little more detailed. Um, it's it's a really nice board. It's basically Asus's top line channel board. They also have a ROG version of the board, uh, the Maximus 6, 7, I don't know. I think um, it's 7. Yeah, we won't worry about that now. But, um, but yeah, this basically this board, uh, with, with the X99 uh, release, Asus, you know, uh, really kind of took the, took the handles off everything. Um, they're, all of their sockets are, they all are um, uh, uh, 2011-3 compatible, but they're actually a specialized socket called 2011-V3. The V3 basically adds extra pins to the CPU socket, and what those pins do is they uh, use 
extra pad connections on the chip itself that Intel left in place, but they uh, they didn't disable them, but they're not really used for anything. They, they're used for internal um, internal uh, testing by Intel, from what I understand. Uh, you know, a few of the manufacturers, Asus being one of them, uh, decided to keep these pins on, and the claim is that it helps with overclocking. Um, from what I've heard, it and what I've seen between this board and other boards, it seems to help. It the, it, it probably helps more with the extreme overclocking, like if you're doing LN2, you know, the uh, the, the really the uh, the record-breaking type stuff. Um, with regular overclocking, maybe maybe not. You know, it's it still remains to be seen. Um, but they have it's got uh, it's got a full eight dim slots. It's four, uh, four channel. Um, it's got let me see. It's got uh, eight. Uh, it's got eight SATA, three ports. It's got two SATA Express ports, which, if you just use those as SATA ports, brings up the total to a, a total of twelve SATA, uh, three ports on there. It's got an M.2 port. It's got three a uh, three-way Wi-Fi connection, so you can get extra speed out of your uh, AC Wi-Fi if you want that. It has a total of five PCI Express slots. Um, you know, one X4 slot on there, uh, it, and it just it looks really nice. I mean, they they, they really didn't, uh, you know, they, they really didn't hold back on anything on this board. Um, you know, it has the enhanced sound on it like all of them do. Um, they even put armor on it. I mean, it's, uh, the uh, top portion of the board has is uh, has the plastic armor overlay on it, which gives it a nice appearance as well. Pearly white. Uh, yes, pearly white and black. You know, not not a bad combo in my opinion. I like. I prefer red and black, but you know, I mean, I, this board is 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 very nice. Um, as far as the actual PCI Express slots, with the X99, it really depends on what CPU you, you pair with the board. The 5860X and or no, sorry, the 5960X and the 58 5860K, I think are both 40-lane CPUs. They, they have 40 lanes that are dedicated to the PCI Express slots, um, whereas the 5820K is a 28-lane PCI bus, PCIe bus. Uh, what that means is basically that uh, translates to how many, uh, what, what speed your video cards can run at and how many uh, video cards can run concurrently in the system. Um, you know, with the 40-lane 40, 40 CPU, you can actually run... Uh, Three-way SLI or crossfire uh, with 16 by and across. Or well, it's no, oh, is it? That's gonna sorry, be sorry. No, it's um, 16 eight, six, eight. Yeah, I think it's 16 by in all slots, um, and then uh, or 16 16 and eight. Um, you know, hence uh, and then with the 28 lane, you can only run eight by across all. But eight by is is plenty unless you know for for the most part, unless you're doing some really hardcore running or for games. You won't notice much of a difference between 8 by and 16 by. Um, the other innovation in it is the M.2 slot. They put it in a vertical slot. Uh, if let me see, Ken. If you go to, I think it's the third page, no, fourth page, maybe the included accessories page. There's a nice shot of that in the board. I think. Yeah. Yeah, go to the fourth page, included accessories page. There's a nice shot. Basically, what they did was they put the uh, they put the M.2 slot vertical, and they have a, a metal riser that actually screws into the into the uh, into the PCB itself. 
that allows uh, allows you to use the M.2 without taking up valuable real estate on the board. And with where it's put, it does not inhibit uh, any kind of cooler or uh, or memory uh, configuration. It works really nice, and with that uh, upright, it really makes the M.2 a lot more rigid, so you don't have to worry about damaging your valuable uh, your valuable drive because those are a bit still a bit pricey. Um, you know, with that slot, that is a PCIe M.2 slot, so you know you're going to want to use an X2 or an X4 uh, rated PCIe M.2 card in there. A M.2 SATA base card may not work in that slot. Just keep that in mind when you're, you know, when when you're using this board, when you're trying to, you know, when if you choose to use an M.2 device in that, um, you know, that that is not something that is ASUS specific either with with uh, with this, you know, with the X99 lines. It's you know, it's just something that the manufacturers have kind of been pushing. Um, as far as performance on the board, it's you know it, it performed as you would expect from uh, from this level of uh, board. You know, it it performs a lot better than the what than the X97. You know, uh, because the CPU is a lot more powerful. Um, Z97. Sorry, yeah, Z97. Thank you. It's been a long day. Yes. Um, so you know, yeah. I mean, it's it's and overclocking wise on on the uh, chip I use, I use a uh, 5960X to test with. I was able to get it up to 4.5. Ryan was actually able to hit 4.7 with his. It's you know, these Haswell chips, even though they have improved the yield on them and and their um and the you know the heat spreader technology and the bonding between the heat spreader and the die is better on the X99 chips. Then was on the original uh, Z87, Z97 chips, the original Haswells. Um, there's still, you know, you still get variation on on your uh, overall OC, but you should get at least somewhere between four three and four five from what I've seen in the field. Um, so and four five isn't bad from a three gigahertz chip base. So. So uh, uh, does it have a discharge button? No, no discharge. I mean, it's already got white all over it. So no, that actually that's that was one of the weird odd things on this that I did note was that there is no CMOS reset jumper on this. The only option you have is you can reset the CMOS via CMOS button, or you can pull the battery. But if you actually want to reset the board, you cannot physically do that. I mean, there is no way to physically discharge the board besides pulling the battery. But even that, it won't it won't get rid of your um, your BIOS profiles and such. The only thing that'll do that is if you uh, upgrade, upgrade, do BIOS upgrade on it. So wow, you know, I mean, not not a big deal to me. I, I kind of like that, um, you know, flexibility to do that. But um, you know, and then they also had an over overvolt jumper to unlock greater voltages if you want to do extreme overclocking. I thought that was kind of odd because you know. Um, it's been a long time since you know boards have really had that. Usually, they just include the extra. They include some kind of a BIOS switch in there to um, unlock enhanced voltage settings or su- and such. But you know, how much does the board that, I mean, cost? It was, it was really, it was a really nice board, and, and it also includes dual Intel NICs on it too, which is an added bonus. Yeah. So, how much is it? This this retail at this board is a four hundred dollar board. It's 
pricey. It's a little pricey. It is. The one other thing comes with too that I forgot to mention. Asus includes their uh, what they're calling the HyperX PCI EX4 card, uh, and basically what that is is that allows you to plug an M.2 drive into the card, and you can plug it into the board into one of your X16 or X4 slots. And so, so this board will support up to two M.2 cards uh, wow. from the factory, which is nice. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the only thing that does is that takes up one of your slots. But, you know, so you have to be careful and make sure that the slot you pick is not sharing bandwidth with something else. Because if you're using a 28-lane CPU, that bandwidth sharing can become more of an issue than if you're using a 40-lane CPU. So just something to keep in mind. Yeah, because if you're spending 400 bucks on a board, you hopefully will be spending another 500 on a CPU with all 40 lanes. Uh, moving along, uh, Alan is happily here through the magic of the magic waves that connect him to us. Even though that he is, uh, he's actually on the set of the movie of Sunshine, and uh, he's in that room where he's getting the full bandwidth of, of the sun. But anyway, uh, talk to us about the Corsair Force LX 256 gig and 512 gig review of Silicon Motion on Techheap. Yes. Uh, so a couple weeks ago we reviewed the Angelbird SSD work. Remember that guy? Josh, yes, Angelbird. Yeah, Angelbird. Like Angel Bird. So, uh, and that, well, it was an impressive drive. It was the first uh, Silicon Motion controller uh, we'd, we'd looked at as far as uh, inside of an SSD. Um, performance, I just call it kind of good. Um, right? When it came to sequentials, it actually did really surprisingly well. Like, it was able to saturate SATA uh, 6 gigabit even further than any other SSD we'd tested. And uh, the response time seemed pretty good when it came to, like, sequential kind of performance as far as saturating throughput. But on the random I.O. stuff, when we threw our, our kind of heavy iometer workloads on it, uh, it wasn't that it was horrible. It was just kind of at the bottom of the pack, um, which is still pretty fast. But you have to realize you're comparing that with things that are more recent SSDs like, you know, the 850 Pro and, you know, other, other kind of more fire-breathing Intel SSDs. Intel 730. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, th- I mean, those are, realize the Intel 730 is uh, modeled after an enterprise SSD. Like, that controller started life as an enterprise controller. And then they overclocked it and put it in a consumer product. So, <laughs> made it even more fire-breathing, basically. Um, so, you know, it's, it's still good performance. Uh, definitely, uh, like an SSD, I would recommend if you could get it at a good po- cost per gig. Which was not the case with the Angelbird, because the cost per gig was kind of high. Um, the case with these, the Corsair Force LX drives, uh, realize the performance between the Force LX and the Angelbird is basically going to be identical. It's the same controller. There don't seem to be any tweaks between both of them. It's basically the same thing, just in a different, with a different packaging around it. Um, cost per gig on these is considerably less than Angelbird. So half a terabyte model was around 50 cents a gig, uh, a little bit higher, like 55 cents a gig for a 256 gig. Uh, and then it ramps up from that point uh, for 128 gig, it's 70 cents a gig. So it's 90 bucks for that guy. Um, so lower cost per gigs than we saw uh, with the Angelbird SSD. Uh, realize there are still other drives that kind of compete. I know Maury's going to have a recommendation here probably towards the end of the show. 
and you know there's just other SSDs out there that are performing similarly and you know could still give you competition but this is another SSD that you could probably add to your list if you're say you're kind of thinking of buying one soon here and you're just looking for good deals like if I saw uh, you know good cost per gig and it was competitive on a sale for a Force LX I would probably consider it just like how I would consider something like an 840 Evo um, yeah so, you know, pretty solid performer. Um, I would just say, you know, keep a lookout. We actually have another review coming up uh, pretty soon here on yet another version uh, or another product from another company that also used the same silicon motion controller. And we're actually going to be able to look at all of the available capacities uh, for that guy uh, as far as, you know, all the capacities you could connect this controller to and see how it scales in performance across the whole, the whole range. Has uh, Corsair done any custom firmware from this uh, that you know of, or are they just kind of using the the stock Silicon Motion type stuff? Yeah, from how it performs, it's identical to Angelbird, and so it, it doesn't seem to be any different. Like if you even on the iometer uh, results, if you compare the half a terabyte uh, Force LX to the half a terabyte Angelbird, uh, which I included both on those graphs just to, to, to show that. Uh, the lines almost overlap perfectly. So that usually indicates that there's really no tweaks and, you know, they're not clocking the controller any faster or nothing like that. Basically the same product. Yeah, so there's room for improvement, potentially. Uh, there might be, but I think that most of the companies are just going with the base firmware for, for uh, Silicon Motion specifically. Um, I haven't seen or heard of anybody doing anything special with them Uh and so it seems like at the price point that you probably wouldn't want to invest in R&D to create your own firmware and potentially get a small performance advantage over the competition at yeah, the nicely I mean, saturated SATA 6 bus. Yeah, I mean, this is a product that tends to not, it's not sitting at the bleeding edge product line from companies, right? Like uh, uh, ADATA also uh, actually has an SSD line that uses that same controller, and it's called like the SP620. I believe, whereas the, or 610, like, whereas that was the 920 that we reviewed uh, from them recently, right? That had the Marvell controller. So it's kind of a, like how they're segmenting their drives. Like you got Marvell that's like really fast performance, and you've got some other controllers that are really fast performance, like Samsung's Pro Series and Intel 730 and that kind of stuff. And this is one of the other ones that it's a, it's a good, con it's a good performer, but it's not the bleeding edge and... You know, it's and it's not J Micron. It's definitely not J Micron. It is a far cry from J Micron. Yeah. Way, way better performer there. Really. So not overall, you know, price, performance, and uh, against the competition, where would you rate this? Uh, I think it's still kind of pricey. Um, it, it, this is this is kind of a kind of an upside down situation that SSDs are in right now. You have like really really good performing drives. And they tend to also be coming out from other companies, and, and they're getting launched at very competitive cost per gigs at the same time, which is giving everybody else a really hard time, right? Because when you have, like, a, you know, really high-end performance, but at the same time, very competitive pricing to where people that are just shopping based on cost per gig, they're, they're finding deals on very good performing SSDs, like maybe even you know, performance higher than this Force LX. So I think drives like this drive need to be cheaper. 
right? That for where, from where they sit on the sit on the performance standpoint, they need to be cheaper to, to really compete. Um, it's unfortunate to say it that way, but you know, they, yeah, they really it's kind of hard to compete against something that uses TLC, and uh, they have a a pretty significant uh, advantage in, in in cost structure there. Yep. That, that's that's what they're going up against, and unfortunately, there's other drives that are probably going to be launching soon, like uh, what we expect to be an 850 Evo from Samsung. So that would have their 3D VNAND, which is an extremely good performance, and potentially triple level cell. Uh, so you know we might see that drive launch and have prices in like 40 cents a gig, or even if it was this you know on par with. With this Force LX, I would probably recommend like an 850 Evo if it existed at the same price, right? Nice. Yeah. Any other thoughts before we head on to the next uh, product? No, that's it for this one. More to follow. Okay, sounds good, Alan. That was a, that was a nice little article that you've written. You've done thank nice you. work lately. Ah, thank you. I'll be sure to let Amy know. Sweet. Yeah, anyway, uh, moving along. NVIDIA G-Sync surround impressions using the three Asus ROG Swift displays. I know that there is only one person on this podcast that has actually seen this in action, and they really should quickly explain the experience because, you know what, I can't do this vicariously through Ryan no matter how hard I try. And believe you me. Ken? Ken? Did you miss the part where Alan works here now, too? I do. Oh, that's right. Alan, talk to me about the... <laughs> I keep thinking you're in Texas. I don't mess with that. I'm not in Texas. I know you're not in Texas. Hold on. Let me flip back to the, the note thingy. Yeah. So tell us about the G-Sync surround. What would you think? You have a discerning so... eye for color. Well, I mean, I sat down in front of it for a little bit. Uh, it, w- it was definitely a cool... Uh, it might not be something that I would go that crazy and assemble like personally in my own home system, uh, but that's just because I tend to just do single monitor gaming. Uh, but it was de- absolutely impressive to see it a work and b be able to do three monitor surround, triple SLI, and have G Sync work like all at the same time. And only time. have to use three video cards that cost twenty two hundred bucks. Well, you do have to use three video cards. It's not just for, from a performance standpoint, but from a physically connecting three displays, right? Because they use DisplayPort, and there's only one DisplayPort port, you know, on uh, on current NVIDIA GPUs. I hope they change that in the future. But even if they made a three-port card, uh, I wouldn't see just one card driving three of these displays, right? Because that's an awful lot of pixels to be pushing. Um, but just to have that. Uh, just to have the surround type experience going, you know, at the same time as G-Sync, it's really one of those things you absolutely have to see it in person. Like, there's no video that we have produced on PC Perspective that can equate to you sitting in front of a G-Sync panel. There's really just no comparison. There's no way to show it to you. It's like those TV commercials that try to show our TV has better yellow it has yellow pixels and it makes your screen look so much better. And then they try to show you an example and you're watching like a 10 year old television. So you, you can't, that has it. three right. sub pixels. Yeah. yeah. That only pixel. has red, green and blue. Yeah. But this TV has yellow yeah. and look how much better it'll look. Well, if you can show me that well, then I don't need your television, that kind of thing. 
Um, so let's increase the saturation. <laughs> that's pretty much all they do. But th- yeah. this is just a this is just a completely different experience. I mean, Josh, you've seen G Sync in action, right? No, yeah. Well, see, yeah, yeah. I think it's yes, he did, yeah. Yeah, but it was not it, exactly in a controlled. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I have. That's and true. It, it does make a difference. Yeah, well, when when you're actually yeah. sitting at one of those systems and actually using it and gaming on it, I mean, it, other things start to make a difference, right? Like, uh, you actually should install your mouse driver. So if you have a higher refresh rate mouse, so that you actually get the higher refresh rate, because it's getting to the point where you would actually notice that difference, that sort of thing. Whereas before, you know, this, the display was, you know, waiting on a frame if you had VSync on, that sort of thing. If you're not, if you're not w- doing those weights or pauses or getting your tearing, once you remove all those things from the equation, then you, it's a different result, right? It's other things start to play into the latency factor, and you start kind of keying in on those things. And it changes how the gaming experience is. Um, but, yeah, it was, just, it was cool to see all of that work at the same time. And I, I, we actually had to use, like, a beta driver even to make it work like the, the nvidia had just made all that stuff work like right before we uh we recorded that event that's really cool well yeah. hopefully we'll uh you know be able to see more of these in person uh, apparently there's another in a uh, well a more cost conscious i believe is it acer is bringing out another g-sync monitor that should be a little bit more affordable for the common man. I think it's a 1080p unit. Uh, we're going to see her, see and hear more about that soon. Moving along. <clears throat> the Intel Xeon E5 2600V3 processor overview. Haswell EP up to 18 stinking cores. 18 cores? Really? Alan, have you played this with this as well? Uh, with that particular, no, I didn't play with it personally. Oh, but uh, uh, was this from uh, IDF? Let's see. The pre- that or was uh, information came out about it uh, during IDF, and then Ryan wrote this up, right? Is that what this one is? I believe. Why do so. you ask me? I only work here. Well, because I, 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 as you'll see in what we're going to cover in the next uh, little bit here, there's been a lot of awful lot of storage stuff I've been covering, so I haven't been able to look over Ryan's shoulder the whole time, but. Uh, let me take a look at the, yeah, uh, 18 cores. What the interesting part, oh, I saw one of the slides from this, yeah, is uh, one of the interesting parts about this is uh, probably the fourth or fifth picture in there to showing, like, how the ring buses actually work, like how these cores are going to communicate with each other when you have so many of them, right? It, it kind oh, of cow. starts getting a little bit tricky, right, because you can only have PCI Express connected to so many of the cores. So now you have to do this kind of funky translation and like uh, having like buffered switches between rings to be able to have the cores on one side talking to things that are only connected to the other uh, cores that are on the other ring. Yeah, it's, uh, it's and, essentially cache coherency in between so many cores. It's kind of like what uh, AMD ran into with hypertransport and why they developed, you know, a cohesive HT between, but there were still jumps and whatnot. And I imagine that a ring bus would improve that in ways, but uh, also prove to be problematic in others, depending on how bi-directional it actually is, and yeah. boy, yeah. It's a that's very a lot of engineering. Thing. It's a tricky thing to solve. There's, there's actually uh, some other stuff that we've seen at IDF uh, as far as research projects that Intel is doing, and they were actually showing like uh, something that 
could be repeated and it wasn't super secret, uh, other methods of interconnecting cores, right? Like there's, uh, there's methods that actually, uh, there were, they had a really cool demo on that shows uh, like a kind of like a routed structure to where well, yeah, it's I mean, actually, so like the network fabric that uh, CMicro yeah. does, Intel does with their what uh, uh, many independent cores. MIC is that what? Yeah, the, yeah. But but this yeah. was like a this was kind of a cool research idea. I think it actually has legs and we'll probably catch on at some point. But they were showing uh, data routing that uh, could occur between an, a hypothetical 256 cores. Uh, and what it was actually able to do was build up and break down these data paths and these data routes just across a matrix. And it was able to kind of intelligently do it. Like, I need to get data from this core to this core. And then it would build up kind of like a telephone switching, right, except for really wide data paths uh, to, to communicate between two devices and stuff. So that's, it's a, like kind of a really complicated thing, but I think... I think the ring bus thing is going to stick around for at least you know another little while, right? It's it's getting more complicated because you can only have so many devices on that ring for it to be efficient. But uh, but yeah, I mean it, it's you know it's cool stuff. It still scales at least for the time being. You know they just have to get over a couple speed bumps for the moment. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know we're we're going to head on to IDF news since we're already on that uh, particular trail. Intel announces core and processor lineup using Broadwell Y. Now, the Broadwell Y was supposed to be released a while ago. However, due to various reasons, this is now the first that we are seeing it. The Broadwell Y is the low-power variant that goes from something like 4. watts SDP to 15 watts TDP, but that 15 watts is only in kind of a burst. Uh, these are dual-core parts, hyper-threaded, what probably is most interesting is that Intel has really, really improved the graphics portion. If you take a look at the die shot of this particular product, and Ken, am I talking about the correct one? Yes. Yes, I am. Graphics takes up now 50% of the die. Where have we seen that before? AMD and their APUs. I think that people are really catching on the graphics and especially compute really does have some legs and it's going to be more and more important as time goes on and uh, certainly we look at this and see how much they have spent in terms of transistor count and die size that uh, graphics and visual computing is going to be where it's at i mean intel obviously has uh really pushed per thread and uh yeah, well, their uh, um, instructions per clock and per thread performance is outstanding, and so we see you know parts like this, which you know really, if if you have a tablet or a mobile product, you're not going to need many more than four threads. But certainly with you know these Retina type displays and 25 by 16 uh, that you hold in a you know eight to 10 inch tablet you're going to need a lot more graphics power. And certainly they are delivering with this. Uh, they went into all kinds of stuff about you know, how small the chip is. Uh, I think Ryan discussed uh, earlier this summer about uh, you know, how, how power is supplied to this, things that they're doing uh, interesting-wise in uh, form factor, and how they just even mount these stinking processors to motherboards. It's... Uh, it's a lot of interesting work and a lot of things that Intel has done well 
because they really believe that that mobile is where everything is going, and uh, they're putting their money in the, their mouth. Is uh, any of you guys have any comments about uh, Broadwell? Why? Well, it's gonna it's gonna be interesting with the power specs on this because you know w- with this processor, Intel's finally starting to realize the power promises that they were looking to deliver when they delivered. Um, you know when they were, they were talking power promises with Ivy Bridge and Haswell and. Well, we've seen some of them. They've been, you know, not as good as they've been promising. I mean, once you actually see the ultra book and the and the laptop versions of these come out, you know, you're going to have a laptop that can be powered for, you know, use full use, you know, ten, twelve hours or something on a, you know, on a decent battery. Probably. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's a really it's it's got some really bitching potential. Power. Yeah, and this is. This is certainly their uh, their first uh, of the fourteen nanometer, which they call, which you know we can go into hours about uh, process technology. At least I could, maybe Ken could. He's he's kind of an interesting guy. Ken's not a very interesting guy. So anyway, uh, yeah, fourteen nanometer. It's going to be low power. Uh, it's going to be high performance. They're two nodes away from anybody else. We've only seen uh, Apple release their. 20 nanometer products, first one of the first really big, or at least relatively big in terms of transistor count products that, uh, that is on that uh, particular node. So Intel is well ahead of the game when it comes to process, process technology. Uh, Asus ZenBook UX305 will be based on Core M. Oh, wait, no, I skipped one. IDF 2014 Intel shows Core M 5Y 70 performance numbers. Now, remember... This is a 4.5 to 15-watt part. It's going to spend most of the time as 4.5 watt. This is going to be a tablet. It's, it's not going to have much of a heat sink. And uh, some of the initial numbers showed it to be pretty darn fast. Not as fast as some of the higher wattage parts, but for being 4.5 watts overall, it's kind of smoking it. So uh, this, is just, this is just Cinebench. And that is a really, uh, you know, it's it's CPU bound. But in this particular case, it's it's kind of spanking everything around. Uh, that that they are all at higher wattage than this one. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see. Oh, look, there's there's more things in there. I really should probably click on this. Do 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 do. So, yeah, we got the Cinebench. Oh, yeah, these were new. I did not see these, so these must have been updated, or at least whatever. Uh, yeah, it's spanking the Tegra K1, the previous Atoms, the A7, um, 3D Mark, again, killing that K1, which is kind of interesting. Um, it's going to be interesting to see exactly what is going on here, because K1... They were really, really pushing graphics and graphics horsepower. And if uh, Intel is nearly 50% higher in performance, uh, it's going to be somewhat telling. So this is going to be certainly an interesting product, and especially at the TDPs. And again, if you look at that die shot, a lot of it is all graphics. So... We'll expect to uh, see these things, what is it, um, Q1, 
2015? Uh, I think for the Core M stuff, it's like next couple months. I think October. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought they October, were trying to get them before October. Christmas. Yeah, it's Q- Q1 is going to be the laptop and Ultrabook stuff, probably. Wow. I think, if I remember. Yeah, if this, uh, if this really turns out to be as good as they are showing... Uh, it's going to be trouble for the rest of the mobile market. And the way that Francois is talking about it, I mean, it is Francois. He does work for Intel, and he has a vested interest in showing the best foot forward. Uh, But if these benchmarks are accurate, then Intel really has quite the mobile chip on their hands. And certainly they have the process technology to take advantage of a really good design. So, it's going to be interesting to see what Intel does, and uh, we certainly appreciate them showing us. So, the Asus ZenBook UX305 is going to be based on the Core M. Do we have a picture of that one? Look at those monstrosities. Now, Alan has uh, one of the earlier ZenBooks. I think he's on it now. Are you not? Uh, no, I'm on a different laptop right now. Oh, you That ZenBook has started to act as if it's not wanting to be alive anymore. Oh, well. It lived a good life. You only skipped it across three or four likes in its lifetime. And... Yeah, pretty so much. So anyway, I, uh, these are small, small products. And, yeah, I've uh, seen again, some of these the in TDP, person. TDP, What's they're that? Demoing, they're demoing a lot of these new kind of things here at IDF, and some of them are like extremely thin and just really sexy looking. That's pretty impressive looking stuff. So, uh, now the kind of really new and interesting thing Intel networking, the XL710, Fortville 40 gigabit Ethernet and VXLAN acceleration chip. You know, we've been sitting at 1 gigabit Ethernet for a long, long time now. And 10 gigabit is still exceptionally expensive. Just ask Ryan because he was thinking about it for. His digs, and uh, now Intel is showing off 40 gigabit stuff. Alan? Yeah, so uh, with the 10 gigabit stuff, now realize uh, part of the issue with adoption of 10 gigabit stuff was that it started out as fiber only, right? You had to have very expensive connectors, very weird, you know, real hard gear to come by. You don't just get a crimp tool for something like that and just make it work, you know, within a couple minutes to put a connector together. And then a few years back, uh, Intel released or you know, started selling a, a 10 gigabit base T, which is the kind that uses your standard you know, RJ45 kind of connectors and uh, Cat5 you know, Cat cable. for. It was actually rated uh, 10 gigabit could actually go at least short distances over like Cat5e cable without having to go really crazy on the kind of cable you're using. Um, so that's been around for a while, and, but the thing is that was really power hungry, right? You're talking like several watts drawn by that by that neck just to communicate a 10 gigabit. Uh, same one for switches, right? A 20 port switch would draw a whole a whole bunch of power, right? Um, so this 40 gigabit stuff is actually pretty cool. It's a it's kind of a a, a play on uh, what people were doing as they were previously purchasing uh, NICs that were 10 gigabit just with four ports, right? So you were getting 40 gigabit just by kind of an evolution of the 10 gigabit, you know, just kind of multiplying it out. And Intel just kind of took that capacity, that, that bandwidth capacity, and just said, ah, we're just going to make a NIC that just goes 40 gigabit, right? Um, 
And not only did they do that, but they're doing it at a much reduced power, right? Compared to a much reduced power draw compared to uh, what the 10 gigabit stuff was doing. So the comparisons they were showing was 10 gigabit at you know some power level, and then 40 gigabit at I think it was actually drawing less power than the 10 gigabit, the old 10 gigabit card. So you're quadrupling the throughput, and you're doing it at less power, which is awesome in itself right there. Um, and then some of the other advancements that are coming along is just has to do with uh, like CPU overhead and just how efficient that whole system is at getting data across the network, right, you know, through the NIC and out over the wire, so to speak. Um, and there's a, that other uh, innovation, which is called VXLAN acceleration. I'm, I'm pretty sure VXLAN is the stuff that... Uh, let me look at this real quick just to make sure I'm using the right term for the right thing. I think it was the VXLAN stuff. Uh, yeah, VXLAN acceleration. So when you previously... Uh, and this uh, is one picture that uh, Scott didn't happen to put in this piece, but it was one of the ones from the side deck. Um, so say you previously you had a, a network you were trying to set up using 10 gigabit or maybe 20 gigabit by having a pair of 10 gigs connected off of, a, off of a NIC, and you wanted to have some sort of a failover setup or some sort of a redundancy on an enterprise kind of network, you would have one system and it would have a couple of 10 gig channels coming out of it, and it would go to a switch, and you'd have another system right next to it, uh, same kind of setup, right? Another pair, you know, kind of a duplicate system, if you will. So that if for some reason the one system goes down, the other one has to pick up the slack. But those systems have to appear to be the same system as far as the rest of the network goes, right? So that way, if the one system does go away, it doesn't seem like, oh, now I have to reconfigure everything else to talk to that other machine, right? And that's kind of a tricky thing to pull off. You used to have to go into all kinds of VLAN configuration for switches and make everything kind of just work right. Um, with this kind of a um, acceleration, this virtualization, like uh, I forget what the acronym, the full acronym is, means, but the VXLAN stuff basically lets the network cards kind of do all that coordination themselves. So you basically tell them, all right, look, you know, you're, there's another pair over here, and they're both behind the same switch, and you guys are supposed to be the same system, like have the same IP addresses, that sort of thing, because I'm trying to configure this in a failover kind of configuration. And the NICs just kind of handle that between themselves. They actually added some form of encapsulation to the packets so that the NICs are able to understand, oh, wait, uh, I might have the same IP address as that other system, but these packets were actually destined for that other system. So I'm just going to ignore them, that sort of thing. So it, it's kind of a means to an end of uh, simplifying having multiple systems, you know, in, in some type of a failover setup or an aggregate bandwidth aggregation kind of setup, that sort of thing. Um, so that's a cool thing too, right? Like, you, And then you don't have to have a special, uh, you could actually use dumber switches, right? You don't have to have a, have a switch that you're configuring VLANs on and all this other stuff. You can actually, if that was the only reason that you had to buy that really expensive switch, these NICs might actually have just removed that reason, and now you can just go with the really generic switches, which is a bonus when you're talking about 10-plus gigabit switches because those things are really expensive in the first place. Um, so, yeah, cool stuff. Um, and Intel is even pushing that further because 
there was a demo at IDF that I haven't actually written up a post on yet, but they took that 40 gigabit NIC, they put one in each of two systems, and then they put P3700 SSDs, which we know are like fire-breathing NVMe-based SSDs that go really fast, um, and they were able to pass, basically pass the the NVMe SSD data over 40 gigabit to another system, so that's it's going over a cable. It has to go through a NIC and get to another machine entirely, and it was pulling the same 450,000 IOPS remotely through you know through that NIC as it was to a, another P3700 that was connected in that local system. So they're basically able to get the same crazy high IOPS over, you know, over Ethernet even by doing so some. Did, yeah. Did you uh, actually touch the cable? Was it burning hot? No, no. It's just like a. Re- it's it's. Uh, if you look at those connectors, you'll see that those are the 40 gigabit link is kind of sort of like a quad 10 gigabit style connector. I forget the exact name of the connector, but. Uh, so it's, it's not a must-use plenum cable, so it does not instantly start on fire. No, I don't think. I think you could. <laughs> uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's going to be meant for a short throw, right? You're, I don't think you're meant to go, you know, hundreds of meters with yards. the cabling. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just you'd probably just get you know a few yards out of it, but enough to be within a server room and get you know over to an adjacent rack or, or whatnot. Um, but I don't think. You know, now that you put that idea in my head, tomorrow I'm gonna go and put my hand on that cable. <laughs> but <laughs> oh, look, I, I really, I, I really don't think it was power running. going through the small cable. Well, right, but well, so first of all, the card was not actively cooled. Right, it was just sitting, and it wasn't even sitting in a two U server machine with a whole bunch of fans blowing over it. They their demo, uh, actually, one of the Intel staff was kind of complaining that they they were like. You know, we wanted to, these guys to set up this awesome demo and everything, but then they just put it in these two desktop machines, and and they were like, you know, it's, it's kind of, they wanted it to seem more enterprisey than that, but they mm-hmm. didn't need to because the stuff was not that power hungry, right? That's so just the thought that they were, you know, moving enterprise grade IOPS across, you know, forty gig E between two machines, and they just did it with very simple desktop machines for the demo. With you know, with the fans not even spinning high on them, that sort of thing. They added they added a couple of little fans that are these really slimline fans that sit between a couple of PCI slots, like they're really low profile and really thin. But just for the sake of getting some air moving inside there to to be kind of sort of like what a server machine would have. Uh, but other than that, that was it. Like just really slow spinning fans, just kind of moving some air across the card. Interesting. Was, you're going to have to uh, take a look at that and, and let us know what you, uh, what you think and what you find out. Yeah. Moving along, though, I mean, because we are, <laughs> we're not even halfway done. IDF 2014, Intel and Google announced reference design program guaranteed two-week AOSP updates. So essentially, uh, Intel and Google are working together to make a reference design based on Intel stuff. And uh, they have a two-week turnaround for any kind of what major software changes is that uh, the the Android open source project. So this is kind of a big deal that Juan Intel is supporting. I mean, long dead is the Wintel platform because 
Microsoft is it's they're not exactly in a niche player, but uh, they are not the hot and sexy thing anymore. I mean, if we're looking at mobile, it's going to be Google, it's going to be Android. Uh, we're going to be looking. You know, it's going to curious if if we'll ever see anything in iOS since uh, Intel and Apple are partners on the desktop and notebook side. It will be interesting to see if uh, they'll be able to squeeze in there as well. But uh, with this open source project, with Intel working at it, so essentially what I'm gathering from this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Ken, it's like, uh, you know, it's almost like the, the Nexus-type machines, except with Intel processors, and they find issues and updates and whatnot can be done very, very quickly because the hardware is going to be all very similar. Yeah, I think the general idea is Intel will put out reference designs, and if Asus wants to make a tablet to that reference design, then instead of having to recertify the device for every update, Intel will handle that on their side and just push the updates to to Asus, and then they'll push it to consumers. Nice. That's the general idea. Yeah, so it's it's going to be interesting to see where this goes, uh, because I know if you have like a modern cell phone, smartphone, uh, you hear about the latest version of Android, and you longingly look at your phone and wonder when it's going to be upgraded to the latest and greatest, and you wait months and months, and then your provider says, no, we're actually not going to update your device to that. So, hopefully we'll see uh, a little bit better performance from this. But moving along... Skylake Silicon up and running for a second half, 20, second half 2015 release. Now, if you remember, Broadwell is the first generation of 14 nanometer parts. Skylake is going to be the second gen of 14 nanometer parts. They've already got it running. They've got it running, uh, that 3D Mark, uh, what, Cloud? I can't remember which one. Ice Storm? Yeah. Yep. Uh, Running pretty quickly on essentially just really, really brand new silicon and running without an issue. So you're going to see performance improvements. You're going to probably see a few little power improvements as uh, Intel takes more advantage of its new 14 nanometer process. And, uh, boy, they're so far ahead of everybody else, it's not even funny. When Apple is the only guy that has a 20 nanometer part that they're showing off, AMD, NVIDIA, Qualcomm, they're all just uh, kind of sitting behind waiting for the process guys to deliver a product that is appropriate for their designs. So it's going to be interesting to see. Um, again, it's not going to be until late, well, well, at least second half. So that could be third or fourth quarter. I would imagine it would be more fourth quarter of 2015 just because, boy, they would probably like to get back their investment on Broadwell stuff as much as possible before introducing Skylake. Unless, of course, somebody comes out of the woodwork and has something that's amazing. We can always just hope. Now, if you haven't had enough storage... I'm sure Alan would love to talk about this. HGST announces a 3.2 terabyte NVMe SSD shingled, wait, the SSDs, 
as well as a shingled 10 terabyte hard drive. So if you have both SSD in large formats and a spinning rust-covered disk at 10 terabytes that has helium, so, so does the disk talk funny? Well, that would, that would mean that uh, I don't know if it talks funny or not, but in theory it would be much less rust. You know. There's less oxidation. Yeah, it's a hermetically yeah. sealed drive as well. It doesn't have a vent hole, right? Otherwise, the helium wouldn't be there for very long. Correct. Um, all right, so first the SSD, and I'll just caveat all of this by saying uh, details are kind of not really there for either of these. They were press releases, but they didn't just have, like, spec sheets and all, all the like. They just said, hey, we're, we're going to be making these. Um, so SN100 is the model of their PCI Express SSD. Uh, it's supposed to be NVMe. We know the capacities are 800 gig, 1.6 terabytes, 3.2 terabytes. We know they're going to be half byte PCI Express. And also in the, uh, uh, I forgot the name of that, uh, SFF uh, thing, but basically two and a half inch uh, PCIe connected uh, format, right? Um, which is basically like your enterprise kind of, you, you want a rack full of these devices kind of a format for NVMe PCI Express SSDs. Um, so it's going to be available, yes. Uh, we don't know stats, specs, none of that. But we just know that they're going to make one. So good on them, you know, and hopefully we'll review them when they, when they do launch. Um, the same, for, uh, same goes for the hard drive thing. So there is a little bit more of a solid announcement on 8 terabyte uh, hard drives that work like normal hard drives do, where you can randomly write and randomly read them and, and whatnot. Um, the 8 terabyte is a follow-on to the 6 terabyte helium drive, right, that HGST made. Uh, but they also announced 10 terabytes, which I would, I would imagine that drive on the inside looks very much just like the 6 or the 8 terabyte drive. It's just that they're able to get the more capacity because they're doing a thing called uh, shingled writes. Uh, so how this works in a short version is that when you write a track on a hard drive, normally the tracks are separated from each other. You, one track never touches another track, and there's always a little bit of uh, empty space in between just to make sure that that doesn't accidentally happen, right? Because if you accidentally overwrite another track, you just lost data. Um, the writing has a, kind of a fixed width, right? The, the, uh, the head can only write so narrow of a track. That's what the limitation is, one of the limitations of hard drives. Um, but the read heads can actually read narrower than the write heads are capable of. So it, imagine if you could read half, like half width of a track, if that was possible. Uh, then if you kind of coordinated with the host system and you made it so that, all right, I'm, I'm going to write this hard drive kind of like how you used to write CDs. Remember that? Right, like a multi-session CD where you could you could write, say, you know, I want to write 80 meg to the CD and only fill up the first, you know, quarter of it or whatever, and then I want to come back later and I want to add some more, right? You, but you can only do that in a sequential pattern for each chunk of it, right? Uh, imagine the same thing applied to hard drives. So in this case, the write head is able to write in a fashion where once it's done with one track, it only moves over half a track width and then it writes another track. And the end result is that you still have half of the prior track sitting next to it, 
uh, and then it kind of looks like shingles on a roof. If you were to look at how the right pattern looked after you wrote a bunch so of tracks, so if you spray it with rubber. water, it's going to be essentially waterproof. Yes, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so the idea is that you've you've now fit kind of roughly uh, you know twice as many. I imagine they're not overlapping it by half, but that's just the example I'm using. So you're able to kind of get those tracks much closer together. Uh, the catch is that you just can't go back in the middle of that and write some new data because now you potentially just overwrote two tracks at the same time. And that's just, you know, it just doesn't really work that well. So the application of this is really hard drives that are meant for kind of, I don't want to call it like backup, but data that is a, a stream of data that's going to that that hard drive that you can kind of, if it, if it can be oriented into a sequential fashion uh, so that you're writing it just kind of front to back of the hard disk, uh, you're able to squeeze more on there, but you just are limited to that method of writing to it. And then once it's there, you can randomly read from it all you want. That's fine. Um, so, you know, think the kind of stuff that uh, old stuff on Facebook, right? Stuff from a year ago. Think of all that data. Think of everybody's pictures and all that content that's just been pushed onto Facebook, like just terabytes and terabytes of it, you know, way more than that even. Um, you take all that you know, over time, you want to be able to archive it somehow, right? So imagine if you could take all that and move it to another set of hard disks in a sequential fashion, in, in bulk, but, but then somebody, you know, grandma might want to go look at your birthday pictures from two years ago, and when she nobody does... Wa nobody wants to see those birthday pictures of me. Well, there are some people that they, you know, they do want to be able to look at them. You know, they want to see Josh when he had hair, right? That was a so, long time ago. You know, so they want to be able to look at that stuff, and so when they do that, somewhere a hard drive like this would spin up in a rack in a data center somewhere and it would access that picture you know you can get to it faster than tape is the idea right you want to be able to put it somewhere it's a it's more of a cold storage idea um but you still want to be able to access it in a reasonable amount of time not have to read a whole tape front to back just to be able to get to your picture that happened to be at the end of it right yeah Okay, so let's move on to the next one. Since we're talking about archival cold storage, Western Digital announces new AEHDDs at the very, very strange size of 6.3 terabytes. Yeah, and it's even stranger than that because 6.3 is not the only number. Uh, think 5.9, 6.0, 6.1, 6.2. Just make some match them at will. Um, so here's the idea here. Uh, this is Western Digital's approach to the same thing we were just talking about with HDST, except Western Digital isn't going to kind of change the way they're writing. They're not going to do this shingled writing method. It's still going to be random access. Uh, what they're going for is uh, they realize it's archival storage. Well, you can take a consumer hard drive and do some additional tweaks to it and give it kind of enterprise -y firmware and whatnot and you know, program it so that it's able to spin down aggressively and be very power efficient. It's not that difficult of a thing to do to tailor it just to that same kind of thing I was talking about, right? You have data, you want to archive it to disks, but you want to be able to randomly access it later occasionally, right? Not all the time. Um, so these are same kind of thing. But Western Digital, I would argue, is going to be able to do this stuff for a cheaper cost per gig compared to a helium-filled, hermetically sealed hard disk, right? Because those things are still pricey. Even though you might be able to get a 10-terabyte version of it, the 6-terabyte version of the HGST helium drives is like three time, two or three times the cost 
of an equivalent six terabyte Western Digital, like a red, for example, right? Um, so Western Digital is trying to go uh, the route of how can we make these drives cheaper and still use conventional stuff, right? Not go really crazy technology changes that would end up driving up the cost. Uh, and one of the ways that they're going to do this is by binning the hard drives based on capacity. Uh, so how, how how hard drives actually work out when they make them, uh, say they want to ship a six terabyte model. Well, if they can't get their platter density up high enough past the six terabyte point to where you know for sure that all the platters you make are going to be able to store enough data to add up to six terabytes in the completed drive, but like what happened before was if it didn't meet six terabytes, it was a five terabyte drive. Like they just had to go down to the next increment down, right? And as you might imagine, that's not very efficient because now you're wasting, you know, say it can only hold 5.9 terabytes of data. Well, you just wasted 0.9 terabytes worth of platter space on, on the product that you could have sold as a 5.9 terabyte drive, right? So along the same mentality as, as that data center archival storage kind of uh, meant that, that thing, uh, those kinds of data stores are not regular raids because that's something that might be going through your mind if you think, well, wait, if I'm mixing and matching capacities, now I can't just make a raid. Well, that's not what they do. Like those systems are set up so that they only spin up a couple of drives at a time and they just write to those and they fill those up and then they let those spin down because you're not really touching that data anymore, and they spin up the next few, and they write to those, right? So it's more of a kind of sequential, individual uh, writing scheme. And those schemes don't really care how big the disk is. They just write it until it's full. Um, so this will let Western Digital kind of bin the capacities of hard drives, not really waste any storage, like not waste any uh, abil uh, you know, capable capacity of a batch of hard drives, if a batch comes out a little bit weaker, they can just sell them as 5.9 terabytes. You know, uh, if they come out really, if they're doing really good, or as time goes on and they mature the the process even further, just like you know, microchip manufacturer, your yields get a little bit better. All right, well now we can we can make these all as uh, 6.3 terabyte drives, right? So, Thank the Lord. Yeah. So uh, when you <laughs> so as a as a large company, when you're buying the boxes of these. You're purchasing a box uh, of they're they're all in boxes of twenties. For anybody that's bought large amounts of hard disks, they come the standard is just a box of twenty. Um, they will label the box that uh, say these are six point one, right? But inside the box, you might have some five point nines, you might have some six point threes, but the total average will end up adding up to you know what you paid for as far as the amount of capacity that you paid for in that whole box, right? Yeah, so it's kind of a, you know, you have to, you have to do a different way of thinking to realize how it's beneficial, but when you realize what the purpose, like what these drives are for, it, it'll work. And it'll, I would imagine it would be able to make the, the cost go down. And, you know, if you, it, like if you were someone who wanted to buy 20 hard drives and you could find a supplier that would sell you a, one of these boxes, like, and as long as you could deal with mismatched capacities, you know, it would work even for someone, uh, you know, a small business that wanted to do something like this, right? Say they only needed one box. And that box might actually be cheaper than 
a box of consumer, like, you know, six terabyte reds. So potentially you could get even more capacity for less cost. Interesting stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, we gotta we got to move along, though. Uh, IDF 2014 yep. through Silicon Via, connecting memory dies without wire. Now, Alan, as you well know, when you stack dies, you have to have these really ugly cables. Well, at least not cables, but wires connecting die to die to die. Gold wire. And Yes, and it's inefficient, and it's expensive to produce, and the machinery to, to do those type of things... Is that not the, that was the music from the video that Ken just tried to start playing? Nicely, <laughs> nicely done, Ken. Yes. Look, is that Stan Akatic? No? So it's like no? a, uh, about a minute and twenty into that video, Ken. Uh, it shows the exact portion of the process we're talking about. So you have dies, individual dies that were cut off of wafers, and you want to be able to put them in a package. And what they do is they just stack them. They'll stack a couple of them or four of them within the package. And then the machine has to come across and actually do, it's like a really high-tech sewing machine looking thing, except it sews with gold wire and it's actually soldering it, uh, like, really, really fast. So it's a very precise kind of process. Um, And actually, Ken, you can scroll down. There's a picture, there's a still picture from that video in there. And uh, so there's basically just this this process has to happen. Um, And for flash memory, uh, the communication into the chip it has to go across those wires to get to those dies. Um, and the same thing applies to anything else that's a chip within a plastic package like that, right? Uh, DRAM, that sort of thing. So for flash memory, uh, there's not that much of a need right now at this moment to enhance that, that part of the tech. Not yet, uh, because the flash memory speed itself is the bottleneck. So we're not so worried about the interface and how many, how many of those wires are data. Right? We're not worried about the width of the data bus of the stuff coming into or going out of the chip. Uh, not for flash memory, but I used flash memory as the example to show you know, this is how the stuff is made right now. Uh, DRAM, same thing applies, except DRAM, arguably, you need to be able to get that information on and off the chip faster than what the number of data lines that technique lets you get away with. Right? You can only put so many wires along the edge of that chip. You can only fit so many. Um, so... Here's the new method, which is a thing called TSV, through silicon via, which is basically uh, drilling Drilling or etching. holes. Yeah, you're drilling or etching very small holes, but all the way through the die. So that way you have, uh, it's, it's almost just like a circuit board, right? If you look at a circuit board and you have, uh, you, you want to make a double-sided circuit board, and they, they might have these little, stand, or these little uh, channels. That actually connects yeah, well, one maybe, side to the other. The, the, the more similar is like a PCB with like eight layers that you've got power, ground, and whatnot, but yep. you've got multiple data layers as well because you have to route things through a very complex board in different ways, and a single or, or two layers will not do. So it's the same right. kind of thinking, right? Right, but in order to connect things from that PCB to the outside world, you have to be able to have you know, those contact points at the top or the bottom of the PCB where you're actually installing components on top of it, right? Well, this is, imagine PCBs without any components, just like flat PCBs, and you want to be able to make connections between them. Like this would be you know, each uh, die within that package, right? So they basically make these data connections just through holes that go straight through. So that way, uh, you don't have to stack them at, at kind of an offset anymore. You don't have to stack them like... Um, you know, so that the shingle? wires can 
so that the wires can touch different uh, different dies within that package. You just stack them straight on top of each other, like a deck of cards. You just make it perfectly aligned, and the holes will just line up from top to bottom, and then they do some kind of an interconnect, be it like really small soldering or, you know, kind of like BGA, but just meant to be sandwiched between uh, between uh, dies within a package. So uh, this allows, uh, from a couple of examples we saw, SK Hynix is making stuff that has like 16 times the number of data uh, bits that can communicate on and off the dies, right? So when you start making it that much of a, of a, of a change, it also... Uh, Another added bonus, uh, bonus is you can put more dies within the package easily, right? You're not trying to stack so high and figure out how that machine's going to fit that many wires connected to, you know, say 16 packages high or something crazy like that, or 16 dies high. Um, they're able to just keep going vertical with it. I mean, I imagine there's a limit, but it, it definitely makes the limit, uh, you know, much less right. with this kind of technology. So I'm really excited about it. Not so much for the advances right now that we're seeing in DRAM. I'm excited because uh, this might end up migrating its way over to flash memory and acting as another roundabout way of having 3D flash memory, right? You might see 16, 32, 64 dies just within one package with this kind of a technology, right? Um, so just hey, look cool at all these that's... defective dies that I can stack together and make one really large, inexpensive chip that I can put on the SSD. Yep. Yep. Well, and, and also from a reliability standpoint, um, this would probably be they're probably going to see a lot less reliability and uh, warranty issues with this kind of thing because drilling a straight through hole is going to be much easier than having to support those uh, sewn-in interconnects because um, yeah. you don't have to sew. You're just filling it with, you know, you may just be filling the, the channel in with gold solder or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine it would just be like just standard solder, solder, maybe silver. I mean, the only reason they're using I, I that gold is the because... the are, are filled during the fabrication process. Otherwise, if you've got a machine, it's like, hey, I'm going to pour solder on top of this dye. <laughs> I hope yeah. it gets it in through all the holes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. A closing comments on it, Alan. Uh, it, I just think it's really cool technology. It's actually been around in other methods, uh, like CMOS sensors tend to use this sort of thing. So you can connect the sensor to uh, a, a backing, like a. I'm forgetting all the terms, terminology, but basically, you know, camera sensors, imaging sensors, things like that have actually used this to some extent. It just hasn't been applied to these other fields and uh, it just will open doors to get, you know, storage to be faster and easier and cheaper and, you know, more efficient and yeah. all those, and, all those good things. Someone was asking right? about uh, thermal dissipation. Now, if, if my understanding is correct, I mean, uh, thermal dissipation is, is essentially a vertical process. So you've got a couple of guys stacked. Eventually they're all going to heat up to about the same and certainly they're going to have less surface area to dissipate heat but the guys who manufacture this are going to tune the products so that this is not an issue. I mean, they're not going to probably... I mean, one flash memory in NAND does not run inherently hot. It's not like uh, DDR3 SDRAM, which doesn't run nearly as hot as DDR2 or DDR1 at high speeds. Um, 
So I think that in terms of thermals, we're not looking at as many problems with stacked dies as compared to say, hey, I've got a GPU and I'm stacking four RAM, DRAM uh, dies on top of that. Then you're running into some some real issues. If you looked at like uh, you know integrated DRAM and in, in some of these uh, products like well supposedly Volta, uh, all those are done to the side and not on the actual GPU itself. So thermals for this type of memory, it's not nearly as crucial as in other ASICs. Yeah, well, there's, there's actually improvements that can be made there, too. When Once you start packaging it this way, uh, nothing says that those holes have to be at the edge of the die, right? So you could put them pretty much in line with where the BGA, with where the ball to mount it to the PCB would actually be, uh, which means that your substrate, which is the little mini PCB that all these dies are put on as they're making it, you know, the thing that you would connect the other end of the wires to, uh, that could be thinner, right? So once you make all those other parts of it thinner and smaller, then there's less stuff for the heat to go through. So potentially, you know, you could stack eight or 16 dies and just have more of the heat make it straight through and be dissipated by the whole PCB that the device is mounted to, right? That sort of thing. Um, and then on top well, of that, also, flash, if, memory if general, if, uh, flash memory generally draws... I'm not going to say it doesn't draw any power, because it does, especially when you're writing. But there have been a lot of improvements in uh, power efficiency during writes to flash memory, which is the most power-hungry operation. And uh, it, it's probably pretty soon it's going to be to the point where it's, it's, you're writing very quickly and drawing very little uh, power at the same time, and therefore you know, not really making that much heat to the point where it would be a concern. Good. You know, it's, it's certainly something that uh, we need in the industry. And it's nice that we're finally seeing physical solutions being offered to the market in a relatively short period of time. So, you know, other things have happened outside of IDF. And uh, Dell certainly seems to want to push the envelope with a 5K, if that's what they want to call it, a 5K panel that runs at 5120 by 2880. And this is going to be exceptionally inexpensive, correct, Ken? Of course. Why wouldn't it be? Well, yeah. Uh, Ultra Sharp 27-inch 5K. This is... You'd think that medical in- imaging would be the absolute you know, bomb for this. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of information on it, but 6.5 million pixels more than 4K. That's just a lot of stinking pixels. Hey, at least it's got 16-watt integrated Harman Kardon speaking. Just, um, do we know when this is going to be released? I think they said Christmas, so like sometime before the end of the year. Maybe In time December 24th. I'm going to go with December 24th. Boy, and when the is, kind of graphics you're going to need to push this. Yeah, exactly. When is a single card graphics single graphics card that can Push this going to be released 2016. Yeah, well, which is kind of funny because uh, NVIDIA, uh, the GM204 information is starting to leak. Now, oddly enough, I have not really been reading this stuff. I've just been damn busy with other things. Any of you guys know the, uh, the basics about GM204? Nope. Um, guess nope, not. WCCF Tech 
video cards have released some information, at least with the 3D Mark Firestrike. And it shows things like the GTX 980 SLI outperforming the R9 290 uh, Crossfire, but it's not quite as fast as the 295X2. So we expect to see the GTX 980 sometime soon. I know that there are certain members of our team who cannot talk about this. <clears throat> and uh, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, I, I guess I can. So we don't know a whole lot. Uh, it's going to be a more power-efficient part. It's Maxwell-based. We're going to see increases in clock speed from the current GTX products from NVIDIA. Uh, it seems like the, uh, the basis of these products will be 4 gigs of RAM on a 256-bit bus. So we're going to see some modest increases in performance from the current 780 uh, and 780Ti's, which is uh, not a bad thing whatsoever. So hopefully prices will go down and performance will go up. Any other comments from these guys? Nerds? All right. Uh, Ken, uh, did you have to wear any lead lining from the containment structure that Intel sent you guys? That's just standard operating procedure now that Alan's here. I'm just always encase myself in lead. You don't know how, how radioactive that guy is. Uh, let's just let the video speak for itself because there's this awesome part at the end with a little dubstep. For information, be sure to visit the Pro Performance website at inte.ly slash unbox. Good Lord. Some Intel engineers spent way too much time making these containers to send to reviewers to have little videos such as this. Lots of lights, motorized, uh, the center part that raises up and down on command once you plug it in. Anyway, it contained a 730 SSD as well as the latest Haswell E product. Yes? Indeed. Yes, Indeed. and not, not just reviewers, though, either, Josh. Uh, there were some interesting podcasters that got that kit that didn't quite know what it was or what to do with it. So, hmm. Hopefully it was, they uh, didn't I don't, stick I don't it remember in what places the name was. There's a female have. podcaster that got it that had a very funny video of the unboxing. Nice. Nice. Uh, well, you know, going on with Intel, uh, graphics drivers claim significant improvements now as Intel is going along, and we've seen with the Broadwell why graphics are becoming much, much more important to the company. They have a couple of driver uh, groups working on them, and uh, they're starting to get with the program and matching up AMD and NVIDIA, and NVIDIA in terms of graphics driver quality, because that was one of the big knocks against Intel for a long time, and certainly even with uh, certain other products that one driver group or the other had uh, you know, tried to support, 
the results were not always pretty. So uh, we're seeing some 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 good pickup in terms of their ability to code good drivers, and they've certainly hired a lot of people on to do this. Anybody else have any other information on that? No, I guess not. Finally, the last piece of hardware news. Oh, my back is killing me, Jeremy. Oh, he's not on the podcast because his back is almost literally killing him. Apple, they had a small event this week that they showed off a couple of new products. Two phones and a watch. The iPhone 6. What? Two watches. Two watches? I thought it was just one watch. Well, basically one watch, but they made a smaller version of it for, I guess, women, right? Or, or your dainty wrists, Alan. Actually, they yeah. Do have like if I, like if, I, if I was to get one, I was having this conversation with Ryan. Like if I was to get one, I would actually get the small one, just because I like a smaller watch because I don't have like huge, you know, wrists. But uh, I, I don't know. So, I'm not sure I would get it until I knew for sure battery life was solid. Solid. So solid. so let, let let's just go to the real meat of the thing. Which one are you buying, Alan? Uh, my wife and I, well, I haven't asked Amy directly, but I'm guessing she wants the 5.5, and I probably would also get the 5.5, because I want the bigger screen, right? Uh, because I've, uh, what's Ryan's uh, newest smartphone of the 5 that he carries around? What's that one? The OnePlus One. Yeah, the OnePlus One is basically the same thing, right? It's the same resolution, it's a 5.5-inch screen. Um, and the, you know, just the holding it, you know, it's a, it's a similar thickness, that sort of thing. And just kind of sitting and just using that device, like that's comfortable to me. Like I would like that size, but you know, I have. So can you, can you do your thumb all the way from the bottom to the top with the 5.5? No, no, you can't. And actually what, what I was specifically checking out, just discussing this with Ryan last night and looking at his one plus, it's a one plus one. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because we were kind of commenting, like, you know, it looked like if you double-tapped home and it shrunk the screen halfway down, it's like, would you really need it to go all the way halfway down to comfortably use your thumb all the way across to the opposite corner? And, yeah, to actually have the phone, like, sitting in your hand. And you know how when you have it in your hand, you kind of, like, cup it with the little palm of your hand there. And to get your thumb all the way to the opposite corner on that large and wide of a screen, uh, you really do have to shrink it down in half. So, I mean, it is usable. usable. Uh, me, personally, I probably just, you know, use my other hand and, you know, just kind of, like, scroll stuff and, and whatnot. Um, but, you know, I think it's interesting that they still have that ability that you can use your thumb on the screen if you were just trying to walk and you have your other hands full, you're trying to text someone real fast, you just, you know, tap home twice and it kind of gives you that capability. And the other bonus is the battery life, right? You know, because you're going to get much bigger battery in that form factor. Um, yeah, and I like the idea of not having to, uh, you know, get reading glasses <laughs> to, to be able to read the screen and stuff, you know. Yeah, certainly the uh, DPI on these products are not as uh, impressive as things like the uh, LG G3 or the HTC One Plus. That's true, but I mean, really, they, those other devices seem to be pushing it kind of, kind of up there, right? Because five point five inches at ten eighty p is like four hundred pixels per inch. I think it's like four hundred one. Yeah. So, 
I mean, really, and again, I was looking at the same thing on, on Ryan's OnePlus One, and it really, I mean, it looks retina at that resolution. Like, it's a retina screen, basically. Like, you really can't pick out pixels. You you have to be holding it like this to be able to see that there are pixels. With bifocals at our age. <laughs> yeah, at our age, I can't focus that close anymore even. So there's not a chance that I can even tell that they're, you know, that the discriminate pixels on that on that screen. So, I mean, it seems it seems like a low number. Like people are like, "Oh, the 5.5 is only 10 AB." But when you compare it to what retina screens were in only 4 inches, I mean, yeah, it actually and, is and much more. How many more... people do you know have 1080p monitors that are less than 22 inches <laughs> in size? Yeah. Yeah, I know. The 1080p thing seems to have kind of carried to monitors that seem to be larger than I think they should be for only a 1080p panel, you know? Yeah, but still, it's it's kind of insane. Uh, I think the really interesting thing about this release, I mean, obviously they're, they're improving their, their software, but uh, the A8 processor is one of the first of the really big and uh, publicly available 20 nanometer products from TSMC. They're the first to really release it. It's a 2 billion transistor product. It uh, has some impressive performance. It's got better thermals. It's got better power. It's, uh, you know, supposedly, I, th I think they were showing a graph uh, that, uh, you know, here's your performance over time in terms of battery power and heat. It does not go down in speed at all. So you're holding it in your hot little hand. It's going to be as fast as if you pulled it out of the freezer. Okay, maybe not. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see uh, the performance of this part when uh, people finally get their hands on it. Again, uh, nobody else really, other than some guys that had some smaller, lower-power ASICs that utilized the 20 nanometer process. I mean, guys like AMD and NVIDIA, they have not yet, as far as we know, uh, had a product that was 20 nanometer. So it's uh, kind of neat to see Apple actually doing this first. But you know what? We're like an hour and a half in this damn thing. Yep. So I think it's it's time for hardware software picks of the week. And maybe hear Maury's dulcet tones yet again, but he's like last in the picks. Ken, do you have a pick? Uh, oh, I know I have a camera turned on, but my uh, papercraft model of the iPhone 6 Plus would be good. Because since Ryan took the OnePlus <laughs> One... fit nicely in your hand? <laughs> well, since Ryan took the OnePlus One on the trip, I didn't have a 5.5-inch phone here at the mm -hmm. office anymore, so I, I, I made the papercraft model. I, nice. I, I'm still debating. Knowing Does it got a good heft to it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it feels like a real premium <laughs> it's amazing product It's feather light. Yeah, yeah, listen to that crinkle. <laughs> real, real, uh, real great feel. All right, uh, too, my, my pick of the week, uh, I, we're doing a big email change going from like Thunderbird and Pop to Exchange. And people have years and years and tens of thousands of emails that they want to change over into the new Exchange structure. And so we've been using Aid for Mail to make this transition so they could start using Outlook <laughs> and then going to Exchange. So uh, relatively inexpensive per seat, and uh, it makes our lives a little bit easier. Alan, do you have a pick, or are you just being lame? Uh, I have been surrounded by an insane amount of new stuff, just for like information overload. 
So uh, I'm not even really sure I want to pick any of those things, though. But uh, I don't know. I would say my pick of the week is educating yourself on all of the insane numbers of news posts that we have published this week and are probably going to continue to publish for the next few days. Uh, Because, you know, it's good stuff. IDF usually has really good technology stuff, and there's a whole bunch of other people here as well that are showing their respective, you know, new technology as well. Um, Yeah, it's definitely cool geeking out stuff. There was actually a system that we're going to, I'm going to put a, uh, make up a news post probably tonight or tomorrow on uh, that was pushing over 11. Uh, well, I think their claim was over 10, but I saw it doing over 11 million IOPS. That's, that's a lot of crazy. IOPS. Yeah. That's and Facebook of- is uh, the one, you know, supporting that one. Uh, no, no, this was just like a, you know, kind of a technology demo, like these guys just put this piece of gear together, and it was uh, 24 P3700s connected to, th- they had to connect it to three systems at the same time, like three very multiple core Xeon servers, three of them, to be able to handle that many IOs per second. Like, when you have to connect three computers to a SSD device in order just to be able to push it all the way, yeah. That's pretty crazy. That's pretty cool. Maury, what is your pick? My pick is yet again another SSD deal. I found this one on um, I found it on the hard forums and on um, I think it was off of Slick Deals. It's basically a 480 gigabyte Samsung 840 Pro equivalent drive for $170. It's a refurbished drive. Its actual model number is 843 Pro. It's, it's a data center model of a drive, and Alan could probably elaborate a little bit on this. But it's got the same uh, MLC as, as a regular Pro. It's just got a, a little bit of a tweaked um, uh, firmware on it. But, and it also is uh, supposedly has a little bit more over-provisioning than a regular Pro drive. So it's ready to last a little longer. Um, it is refurbished, so it's only got a 30-day warranty. But they say that they have never been used. So... It's, SM I mean, 843. Okay, so yeah. I'm trying to remember if I've got this right in my head, but I think the 843 was the 24 layer VNAND. I think. Okay. Uh, which is, yeah, I mean, and the data center drives are pretty good. But keep this in mind, though, you might actually get, like, for consumer workloads, for regular desktop workloads, you might actually get a little bit better performance uh, out of, like, an 850 Pro. But really, it's, it's going to be a fast SSD. It's just that it's more tuned for sustained, you know, random writes, like random 4K writes, that sort of thing, Um, which sometimes that means that they go a little bit more of the slow and steady wins the race route on on how the drive handles I.O., like just workloads, right? Um, You know, uh, like if you hit a desktop class, like just a consumer, regular consumer SSD with a kind of a workload that this SSD is designed to handle indefinitely, the desktop one would only be able to pull it off for a little while and then it would just kind of give up the ghost and it would perform much slower than this one might. Uh, but before that period happens, you know, just for regular stuff like gaming stuff and, and whatnot, the 843 might actually be a little bit slower 
for those kinds of workloads. But if you can get a smoking deal on something enterprise rated with really crazy high endurance to the point where if you're using it as just a regular person, you pretty much don't have to worry about burning out the flash and wearing it out for your lifetime, then uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I will just use this SSD for as long as I live, and it will work in whatever. Until the Windows office. install reaches 400 gigs. Windows 15 or whatever. Yeah. 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 Well, you know what? That's it. That's the end of the pain for this evening. So, again, you can uh, find these podcasts at pcper.com slash podcast. You can follow Ryan at twitter.com slash Ryan Shrout, twitter.com slash pcper. I believe that Maury, Alan, and myself all have Twitter accounts. Look them up if you want to hear the crap that we talk about, which I probably talk about more crap than others. Maury talks about more Star Wars and Star Trek thing than anybody else. And, uh, Alan, I'm not sure what the hell you do, but I think your wife does more Twitter than you. Probably. Don't look her up. You're just, yeah, anyway. Okay. Uh, so that's it. That's our show. Number 317 is in the can. Almost literally and metaphorically, which is kind of the same thing, but in different ways. So, I'm Josh Walrath. I'm Alan Valentine. And I'm Mari Tattleman. And thank goodness, good night. <laughs>